0: Welcome to Insight, a podcast devoted to subjects that are theological, historical, literary, even cinematic, but especially biblical. I'm your host and presenter, Gary Nation. Today we have a wonderful study in God's Word. We are in the Gospel of John. and We are going to be looking today at what is possibly the most important verse in all of the Bible. It is a verse of Scripture that if you don't know any other Bible verses you may know this one. But if you don't, you definitely should. Now last time, we saw in the third chapter of the Gospel of John, Jesus speaking to Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, one of the best men in all of Israel. And he came to Jesus by night, looking to confer with him, and Jesus got right down to the point and said, Unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Unless you are born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. To be born again, as we discussed it, does not merely mean to have a conversion experience. It doesn't merely mean to have a change of personality. It doesn't merely mean to have a change of character. To be born again means to have... Really, seriously, a change of identity, a change of who you are. You are earthly, you are fleshly, but to be born again means to be born of the Spirit. The kingdom of God is a spiritual kingdom, and to be born, and in order to enter that kingdom, you have to be born into it. You have to have a change of nature, and that can only be accomplished not by any kind of reform of the old nature. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but you have to be implanted with a new nature. Spirit gives birth to spirit. And so Jesus saying that, uh, Nicodemus didn't understand what he was saying and said, "We're we're talking about things that we've seen. You don't believe our testimony. If you don't believe If you don't understand what I'm talking about, earthly things, how can I talk to you about heavenly things? These, to Jesus, these are earthly things. This is entry-level stuff in the kingdom of God. One of the things we pointed out last time also is that the term kingdom of God, which is very, very common in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it is the substance of Jesus' main message in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but in the Gospel of John, the term the kingdom of God is only mentioned here. In this passage, mentioned, what, two or three times, used that many times. But what you have here, John gives us a signal and he gives us a clue as to the term that he's using instead of the kingdom of God. It's not that Jesus didn't have that message here, but when John internalized that message and associated it with something else, you will see this associated with eternal life. To enter the kingdom of God is to have eternal life. And at verse 14, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son be lifted up, son of man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. The term eternal life is one that has to do with not just living forever. That's what it sounds like to us and that's what it sounds like in English. But the phrase that's actually used there literally means, because there was not a Greek word that, liter- that meant eternal the way we use the word eternal, but this is a term, it literally means into the age, participating in an age. It speaks of the age to come. In the Bible's worldview, we are living in a a series of ages. And right now, this age that we are living in is a sinful age. It is a rebellious age. It is an age that is under judgment. It is an age that is under the judgment of God. But there is an age to come in which everything will be made new. There will be a new creation. There will be new heavens and a new earth. There will be paradise. There will be the reunion of God with man. It is the age to come. It is the age of the kingdom of God. It is the age where God's rule is perfected in all things and brings everything together. The kingdom of God is the age to come. It is the eternal kingdom. It is the the kingdom without end. And so it is of the age. And so When John uses that term, of the age, we translate that eternal because it is the character of the age to come, the character of the eternal kingdom. So the kingdom of God is rendered in John's gospel with the term eternal life. Does that make sense? Okay, now let's go on and let's look at the verse which is, again, possibly the most important verse in all of the Bible. It is the verse which comprehends the gospel in just a few words. Let's look at it. John John's Gospel, chapter 3, verse 16 For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Let's look at this just phrase by phrase, just for a moment. Just, just cherish it. Let's just go over it and savor it. Because it's it's so beautiful in the comprehensive the comprehensiveness and the sweep of what it speaks of. Let's Catch all of the flavors of of this wonderful, wonderful verse. For God, creator of all things, and the judge of every living thing, so loved the world that he gave. Okay, let's just stop right there. God so loved the world that he gave. What is God's disposition toward the world? A world that is in rebellion against Him. A world that has turned against Him from the very beginning of creation. A world of sin. A world of injustice. A world of violence. A world of hatred. A world of selfishness. How does God look at this world? With disgust? How does God look at this world? With bitterness? With regret? Like it was when he spoke to Noah and said, I am sorry that I made this this world. I'm sorry that I made man. Is that the attitude that God has toward this world? No, the heart of God toward this world, the heart of God toward sinners, the heart of God toward you and me, is a heart of love god so loved that he gave to give is the as at the core of what is love love is a heart to give love is a drive to give and god so loved that he gave what he gave the highest gift that he could possibly give he gave His only Son, the word only there doesn't simply mean the only one there, the only one of any number that could be there. It means absolutely unique. There is no one anywhere in all of creation who is like the Son. The Son stands in an absolutely perfect and special relationship with His Father. The Son is the Word of God, the Lagos of God. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Son of God is God come in the flesh. The Son of God is the only Unique One who stands in a relation to God that no one in creation stands because He is one with God. So God sending His Son is God coming to us Himself. God so loved the world that He came to us in the person of His Son, Jesus. So that Whoever believes in him should not perish. Whoever believes in him. We've seen that the word believe is the single most important word in the entire Gospel of John. It's one that he uses over a hundred times. He uses it in various ways, and sometimes there is sometimes people believe but they do not believe in Him sufficiently that He entrusts Himself to them. They believe, but their belief is conditional. They believe, but their belief is weighed by all kinds of factors. But whoever believes in Him, whoever commits himself to Him, is persuaded of Him and commits himself to the Son. Whoever believes in him will not perish. Now understand, that word perish is a very serious and solemn word. It means every bit of what it says, and actually it's a soft word for, what it all, for all of the meaning that it carries with it. To perish is the fate of everyone who falls under the judgment of God without His mercy. It is a severe and serious word and with it it carries the idea not of ceasing to exist, but ceasing to exist in the presence of God, ceasing to live in the presence of God, to be put away eternally. It is a bitter thought. It is the fate of those who are under judgment, under righteous judgment. Those who are under the righteous judgment of God will perish. They are doomed. But God so loved the world, and as Peter said, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, His only begotten, so that whoever believes in Him will not perish. You see, to perish is the default position for those who are under judgment. That's John's point. And he's going to explain that point more clearly as he unfolds this in the verses to follow. The default position for those who are under the judgment of God, the default end is that they will perish. But whoever believes in the Son will not perish. Now that right there, <laughs> that, is, that is so blessed. That is, that, is, that is such a blessed word. But there is so much more than that. Because who shall will not perish, but will have eternal life. I want you to think about something. Eternal life, to have life, eternal life, means to have the life of the age to come. There is an age to come which is perfected. There is an age to come in which there is no sin. There is an age to come in which there will be no violence. There is an age to come in which there will be no hatred. There will be no injustice. There will be no bloodshed. There is an age to come in which the Lordship and sovereignty of God will be experienced by all of creation. There is an age to come that will not see death. There is an age to come of eternal life. And Jesus says, Whoever believes in the Son will not perish, but will have. Have, present tense, right now, in this present evil age, will have eternal life, will have the life that partakes of the life to come. It is possible to be born again and to live the life of the age to come even in the here and now. That is the astonishing, the astonishing, startling message that Jesus brings. And it is good news. It is the heart of the gospel. I've got to say it again. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned. Let's just stop right there and see what all has come. God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world. The purpose of Jesus coming into the world was not to bring judgment, was not to impose the penalty of sin, it is exactly the opposite. God sent not His Son into the world to condemn the world, to judge the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. Just a little bit of Greek lesson here. The same word for uh, the same word is used in the Gospel that can be translated to judge or co- to condemn. Now there is a because there is a Greek word from which we get the word crisis, which means judgment. And there is another word that's related which means condemnation. John doesn't use the word condemnation very much but he does use the word judge a lot. And here, there's a double-edged sword here. God did not send His Son into the world to judge the world but to save the world. But here... Is the judge? whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Why is he condemned already? Because the default condition of the world is judgment. We are under judgment. The wages of sin is death and all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, says Paul in Romans. We are all under the judgment. That is... That's where we are. That is our human condition. So we need to be saved from that. That is what salvation is about. We need to be saved out of the judgment that is already upon the world. But it hasn't been levied on the world yet. There will come a day of judgment in which all things will be judged. All of the acts of men and women will be laid out before the throne of holiness and there will be a, an examination of all things, and the effect of every life will be measured. The good and the bad. Now here's the problem. The good can never outweigh the bad. You know why? Because even the good is of the flesh, and that which is of the flesh is flesh, and that which is of the spirit is spirit. God did not send the son, His Son into the world to condemn the world, but here's the thing. His very coming into the world provokes judgment. That's what John says next. Whoever does not believe is condemned already because he hasn't believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. That light has come into the world, and men loved the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. The very fact that Jesus has come into the world as the Savior provokes a reaction and a response. Whoever believes in him will not perish. And that invitation has gone out into all the world, to all mankind. No one is excluded from the offer of God's salvation in Jesus Christ. But here's the thing. If you reject him, there is no other way. There is is no alternative. God did not give an offer and a buffet of several methods of salvation to mankind by which to be saved. He sent one Savior into the world. He could not send a better. It is His only Son. Whoever believes in Him will not perish. Whoever does not believe, whoever believes is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is already condemned. It's not that his jud- the judgment has already come, and yet, in a sense, it already has. He's already closed the book of salvation on himself. It's a solemn thing to contemplate. Let's look at these words again. This is the judgment light has come into the world remember that at the beginning in the first chapter of John the light was the light of men and the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it but now here's the deal he did not come into the world to bring condemnation but light always condemns darkness Light always creates a separation of itself with darkness. And here's the mystery. People love darkness rather than light. Well, it really isn't a mystery, is it? Because darkness hides. You can hide in the darkness. You can hide even from yourself if it's dark enough. You can bring the darkness into yourself and hide even from who you are in your innermost being but you can't hide from god i remember a hymn by count nicholas von zinzendorf the great moravian uh, spiritual leader taking it from a psalm O thou to whose all-searching sight the darkness shineth as the light search, prove my heart it yearns for thee. O burst these bonds and set me free. To God the darkness shineth as the light. And when the light has come into the world men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. People don't want to give up their sins And when you don't want to give up your sins, you flee into the darkness and think you think the darkness will continue to be a cover for your sin, but it won't. On the day of judgment, all things are going to be revealed and the light will be absolutely unavoidable. Today we live in a day in which you can avoid the light. (laughs) You can continue to walk in darkness. Why do you want to? Why do you love doing what is evil? I ask you that bluntly truth is we all do we all do there's all something in there's something in all of us that wants to avoid the light that wants to hang on to something that we know is evil and yet we love it we love it and we won't don't want to let it go but whoever comes to the light whoever does what is true, comes to the light. I think that's interesting how John phrases that too. He doesn't say whoever, everyone who does what is right, comes to the light. Did you notice that? He doesn't say everyone who does what is good, comes to the light. He said Now he says, those who do wickedness, those who do wicked things, bad things, evil things, hate the light and don't come to the light, lest their deeds should be exposed. But everyone who does not what is righteous, not what is good, but what is true. And what's the difference? Well, maybe it's, maybe it's just a shade of meaning, but I think it's a significant one. It's not about, repentance is not about becoming righteous in order to come to God. You can't do that. You're not You're not going to get righteous enough. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. You cannot reform to be good enough to enter the kingdom of God. You must be born again. But everyone who does what is true comes to the light. I believe that John is using that word very, very specifically because truth is also a very important theme in this gospel. And I believe John is using that word here to emphasize the fact that repentance means coming to grips with the truth. The truth about ourselves, that we're sinners. The truth about who we are and what we deserve, but also the truth that God has promised an incredible gift. The gift of eternal life. That if we believe in Him, ours not by works that we do but works will come out of that belief we don't come to him with works but when we come to him he transforms us into those who do the works that will please him so everyone who does truth Comes to the light that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God that it's God who enabled you to become a child of God as it says in chapter 1 verse 12 to everyone who believed to them he gave the right the authority the ability to become the sons of God. What a wonderful, powerful passage. I want you to think on these things this week. I pray that your week will be blessed. I pray that you will have, whether your times are difficult or whether they are wonderful, that in all things, You will carry with you the joy of the Lord. Next time, we'll complete this chapter and see the very important witness of John the Baptist that opened up some of this this cycle of, uh, of the story and is going to bring it kind of to its own little close. We're going to look at that next time. Until then, may the Lord bless you. Before we leave, I want to say a few words about the term only begotten that appears in the King James Version, but in the newer translations has been uh, replaced with the word unique uh, or one and only. Uh, There's some reasons for this, and I'm going to talk about that in just a minute, Um, but I think it's important that we see that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, and that that word has uh, a specific meaning regarding the identity of Jesus and does refer to the eternal generation of the Son. Uh, Denny Burke, who is a biblical scholar uh, at Boyce College, uh, a few years ago wrote an article Uh, referring to this. He had been studying the Nicene Creed in Greek, and it was illuminating to him. I want to share with you some of his thoughts from uh, a piece he wrote titled, Deep in the Weeds on Monogonase and Eternal Generation. He says, one thing that is clear in the Greek is that the Nicene fathers were interpreting scriptural terms in saying that Jesus is the only begotten, monogonase, and begotten, not made, ganao. These terms derive from John's writings, and the creed clearly interprets monogonase to denote generation, or begottenness. That the Son is begotten, not made, and begotten before all ages means that the Son's only begottenness is eternal. Thus, the doctrine of eternal generation emerges in the creed not only as the church's confession, but also as an interpretation of specific biblical texts. To be sure, the doctrine of eternal generation has a broad biblical basis and does not rely solely on monogenes. Nevertheless, the Nicene fathers feature monogenes in the creed as an exegetical linchpin for the doctrine. And after reading the creed in Greek, it immediately became clear to me, he says, that the Nicene father's interpretation of monogamous is in direct conflict with a near consensus among modern New Testament scholars. Since about the middle of the 20th century, it has become commonplace among New Testament scholars to reject the Nicene father's interpretation of this term and to say that monogamous means only or unique, and therefore... Thereby, to remove this term as an exegetical proof for eternal generation, and then he lists several very solid biblical scholars who do just that they they reject monogonase as the meaning of as meaning only begotten and say no no, no no, no, what this means is unique, one and only and so Denny Burke goes on to say. The question is, why has this dismissal become so commonplace? Many of the authors listed above cite the same source for their arguments, a single journal article written by New Testament scholar Dale Moody that appeared in the 1953 Journal of Biblical Literature, in which Moody argues that only begotten is an etymological, linguistic, and historical error. And he goes ahead and he shows the article and lays out Moody's arguments for that. And then he goes on to say, many New Testament scholars view Moody's article as the definitive word on monogonese. And then Burke says, but I believe that Moody was wrong, really wrong. This is a term, after all, that means only begotten in numerous texts across ancient Greek literature, according to Lee Irons' recent research in which he has located 60-plus examples of monogonase in non-biblical Greek before the 2nd century. That means only begotten. Burke continues to uh, lay out he, specifically four arguments that he lays out why Moody and there, and Consequently, these other authors are wrong about this. And I I'm, I'm only want to give you the fourth one. He says, Moody's linguistic arguments are not sensitive to the context of John's use of the term. In every instance that John uses the term monogonese, it follows a passage or context in which he uses the term ganao to refer to the new birth Every single instance. And he lays out the passages both in the Gospel of John and in the first epistle of John. He said that's no accident. John is intentionally drawing a distinction between the new birth that we experience and the Son's unique begottenness from the Father. John seems to be saying that while Christians have been begotten by the Holy Spirit, Jesus is the uniquely begotten Son of God. His begottenness is different from ours, and indeed, utterly without parallel. It turns out that the Nicene fathers knew Greek really well, probably better than any of us reading the New Testament today. I think, he says... The interplay between Monogenes and Ganao in the Creed shows that the Nicene Fathers noticed the interplay of those same terms in John's writings. They were interpreting the Greek Bible in the Creed, and they were and are right. Jesus is the uniquely generated Son of God, begotten, not made, before all ages. I am going to simply... Say that and say, Amen. There is still much left in this chapter. Join me next time as we look at the testimony of John the Baptist. This is Insight with Gary Nation. Thanks for listening.